In conversation with Luke Street, this is the Wild Eye Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Jerry, I'm from Wild Eye, and this is episode 340 of the podcast. Now, if you've been following our social channels, you would have seen that the Wild Eye guiding team has three brand new members. And, I mean, having looked around for quite some time, I'm super proud of the guys we've been able to get. Now, in the previous episode, you would have heard Matt talking about 10 photographic tips for beginners. I'm going to be chatting to Matt next week, just to kind of get to know him a little bit, see what makes him tick. But in this episode, I caught up with Luke and Luke is actually heading off to the Masamara tomorrow. So we quickly met on a Zoom and we dove straight into things like conservation and photography and the Mara. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Luke will be back on the podcast with me as soon as we are both back from Kenya to discuss his experience and thoughts on the Mara camp, which will be his first visit. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Get in touch with Luke. All of his details will be in the description of the podcast. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Luke, how's it going, man? Yeah, no, all good, eh? So, for people all listening, good. who's cold? Um, well, you know, for people that are listening, if they'd like to know a bit more about me, other than what I'm going to probably bore them with now, they're welcome <laughs> to go and read a blog post that I recently wrote on myself uh, on the Wild Eye blog called This Is Me. Uh, but essentially, I am, yeah, my name is Luke. I like to take photographs. I like animals even more than that. And uh, I like to experience new things very often. Um, and yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot more to it. I'm mm-hmm. not that boring, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, what do you, I mean, so you're one of the newest, you, well, you are the newest member of our team. We're very proud to have you from a, let, let's go there from a photographic travel industry. What do you think could be better throughout the entire industry? What, better, better than working uh, with Wild Eye and, and doing what we do? As, no, so I mean, we're obviously the best. We do whatever we do well. What do you yeah. think the industry as a whole should be looking at in order to make it better? Sure. I'm not too, too sure what could be done as a whole. Um, you know, it was always, um, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure. That's quite a tricky question, actually. I mean, I feel no, like... You dive in the deep end here, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like the industry, particularly, I mean, in, in, in Southern Africa, you know, I, I can't say that I have an extended uh, or extensive amount of experience outside of Southern Africa in particular. Mm-hmm. But I always felt like Southern Africa does the safari thing really well. Um, you know, really, really well from an exclusivity yeah. point of view, from sightings point of view, from the way the conservation is run. And I mean, that's probably one of the most important things, right, is conservation. That's what we're all here for. Um, and, you know, as, as many you know, skeletons that South Africa might have hanging in its uh, conservation closets. Yeah. I don't think there's, there's uh, countries that have done it too much better than us across the world. So, you know, true. I've always felt um, of Southern Africa and the way that we conserve wildlife and the way that we also go about viewing wildlife from a yeah. private game view point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I always feel like the industry could get far more sustainable, but I mean, that's also a new thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's only the last 10 years the sustainable thing has, has come around. I mean, if you right. were looking at People built these lodges and these camps and so on 20, 30 years ago. Nobody was even thinking about sustainability. It just no. wasn't even a thing back then. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's something that the industry is going to, um, you know, come to grips with slowly but surely. It's getting more sustainable. 
I think you'll find a lot more lodges are no longer handing out plastic water bottles like they're going out of fashion. Um, you know, kitchens are becoming maybe a little bit less meat orientated. Um, although you'll never get rid of that, you know. Yeah, you can't. Let's be honest, when you come home from a long day out in the field, a nice bry or barbecue is not a bad thing in a lodge. <laughs> no, it really isn't. Um, it isn't, along with the beer, of course. This is true. Um, when, when you can actually get beers in South Africa. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, beers for everybody else, none for us, Jerry. No, but, exactly. um, yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, definitely coming back to good prize, lacquer, and so forth. But um, yeah, I think to, to answer your question, your initial question, I think the only way that this industry could get better uh, is to become more sustainable. Um, I think that's one place where Southern Africa kind of shines is because there is. You know, people are paying attention to the numbers of people coming into these areas and the amount of vehicles going out into these areas and, and so forth. I mean, I'm not talking about the Kruger National Park as it is, although no, sure. it might be trying. But uh, you look at the private sectors, you know, even into parts into Namibia, you know, people are very conscious about this sort of thing now. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's one place where we could tackle it even more. Mm. So, yeah. I was I was interesting. I was, I was up in Maratoba a couple of months ago. We did some content for them there. And the information that they gave us as well with regards to specifically rhino poaching, but rhino numbers and how the private sector is basically running that. Like how yeah. it, would, it would not even last a couple of years if the private sector was not involved. So that's a big deal. It's a huge thing. Yeah. It's a yeah. huge... No, sorry, go well, for it. You know, I mean, sorry, yeah. I, mean, I was going to jump in there. I mean, I, I've been working in the Timbavati now for the last six years, obviously part of the Kruger National Park. Mm. Uh, or, or part of the greater Kruger National Park. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you get the feeling that if there wasn't private uh, private involvement in terms of people privately protecting these areas, privately protecting rhinos that, that happen to move freely between Kruger and these sure. private areas, so wish, um, things would be in a lot more of a dire strait as the states at the moment. Um, you know, that's not to take away from a lot of the people in the Kruger National Park that have worked, you know, their fingers to the bone over the last few years in order to try and stem the flow or stem the tide of, of poaching that's been going on. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the it's something that I always, always used to bring up with my guests is, you know, we can, we can, you know, a lot of people have a bit of a, particularly people from overseas, they have a bit of a reservation about this private land ownership thing within Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, it always leads to, to some interesting debates sometimes if you have the right minded person on the back of your vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, but I often, come back to the conclusion that you know these private people that often or these people that own these private areas are often very passionate about what they do and it just so happens that they have money as well and yeah. you know you can't blame them for that but at the end of the day what you're doing is you're allowing these people that have a have money and yeah. b have passion yes. and so they really put their, their their money where their mouths are you know and and um and do pay their way yeah. on top of that you know you also get a inordinate amount of international travelers that come to these areas and mm -hmm those people are often more than willing to pay a conservation fee. And uh, that conservation fee or levy is a lot higher than you pay going into a national park like the Kruger National Park. And so you end up with just a lot more money to play with and a lot of expertise to play with. And, you know, people are, that have those expertise are more drawn to working with the private industry than they are to work with the public. The governmental. Mm. Do, uh, do, do you think, yeah. just on that, I mean, I was on TikTok the other day, right? And I saw my, my dad actually messaged me and he said, listen, go and check out this thing on TikTok, they're doing a live. So on TikTok, it's like an Instagram live, but I, I'm, I'm lost for the guys. It's like Moby Rhino or Rhino Moby or something. I never heard of them 
at this stage. So I've reached out to them to try and get them on the podcast to find out what they're about. But now I go into this live and they've got like about 90,000 people on their TikTok, which is a decent amount. But I open this live and there's a guy holding the phone, obviously like a live, and there must be 100 rhinos, right, in this open clearing and they're feeding these things with bales of hay. Now, this is cool. And these guys, obviously, as he's talking, Afrikaans guy, older gentleman, must be involved with this whole thing, very passionate, and they're doing their thing. The problem is, I think that social media has created created the potential for, 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 for sensationalism around these things. Because if you look at the comments, because on a live, you can see the comments coming up. And yeah. the stuff that people are saying and people's perception of it is scary. And then you look at yeah. this, there's big people out there who do conservation and, and, and I'm not, not even, um, what's the lion whisperer's name? Kevin Richardson. Um, what's his name? Uh, well, <laughs> I think Kevin Richardson. It's, it's, yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not even referring to him. Um, but there's other people out there who they create these, these, these conservation places, if you will. But it's mm. almost like the point for them is to go onto Instagram showing how they hug a hyena and dance with a lion and, and, then people start saying, well, which is this? I mean, you, you're going to get these questions. I'm sure you have. And, mm. and they say, well, I want to do that because I want to do conservation, even though that's not it. It's a, yeah. it's a big problem for me. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, you never know. I mean, some of these guys like, uh, what is it? Kevin Richardson or Keith, Keith Richardson. I can't remember. But um, no, Keith, Richardson, Keith the, Richardson from the oh. Stones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a bit more famous. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, look. You never know. I mean, some of these guys, they really do have their hearts in the right place. And I've always got that perception from him, um, if you know what I mean, where he's oh, yeah. actually trying to run. I think a lot, of, a lot of people get confused between a zoo, a sanctuary, a wildlife reserve, uh, this, that. Yeah, a game park and so forth. I mean, game parks are what you find in Texas, America, where you can go and drive around and there's a giraffe and a rhino. No. And one in Texas called the Timbavati, by the way. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I always like to try and dig a bit deeper into these people and, and find out. And um, a lot of the time, some of these guys, particularly him in particular, I think is, is just trying to help lions that may mm. have been negatively treated by human beings or come yeah. out of the can hunting, you know, um, industry or whatever it might be. But then you also do come across the guys that are literally just popping up an Instagram post and, and, Those video and, so and um, yeah, hugging his hyena and things like that. And, and there's no real backstory behind this. I mean, Exactly. Uh, Kevin's obviously been around for a long time and he's done a lot of interviews and I think he's quite a well-respected person within mm -hmm. the industry. But what that's done, and and, it, and maybe this is where you're going with this, is, is it's opened the floodgates for other people to attempt to do the same thing because, you know, mm. sure, they might like lions and, and hyenas, but it's sure. not really conservation at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, look, you get a lot of people that um, come from overseas, they've seen this on Instagram, they've seen it on Nat Geo, they've seen mm -hmm. it on whatever... And they, they come with the misconception that they're going to be able to have this experience as well. Yep. And unfortunately, there are places that cater to that experience because of this, because it's, you know, mm. and the lion cub petting thing, the hyena petting thing, yeah. she, she even cheetahs. I mean, you can go and pay to, to walk around with cheetahs in an enclosure or mm. tiger cubs in the middle of Africa. You can go and pay, play with tiger cubs. It's just yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's incredibly mis, you know, it's unfortunate because so many people have been duped by this and, mm. um, what's even more unfortunate is you get a, a good percentage of people that haven't been duped. They know exactly what it is and they just want to keep going back because they want that mm. feeling of playing with the baby lion. And 
believe me, I mean, you know, we've all, I, I've been there, I've done it, you know, not sure. knowing when I was younger what it was. Um, and then you kind of grow older and you get into this industry and you figure out how deep the rabbit hole goes with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's one of South Africa's dirty secrets, like I said in the beginning, you know, conservation yeah. skeletons yeah. in the closet. A lot of those. Um, and that's where a lot of these people have been hiding behind these things for so long. Is mm-hmm. It's conservation. We're raising these lion cubs because we're going to repopulate a game reserve in the north of uh, South Africa. And this male is going to go there for the genetics. In the meantime, yes. I mean, those lions just get to a certain size. They mm-hmm. get a bit too powerful. And then they get sold to the top bit. Um, that's it. You know, and not I- sold to be a pet. I think the, the interesting thing is with, with someone like Kevin, he's been around forever, and he was doing this even before the social media craze. The, the problem with a lot of these young guys coming up, the, the, the viral factor of some of the content they're putting out is pretty big. Yeah. I mean, you scroll, and there's this guy, like, hugging a male lion, and he's petting a hyena with his foot and stuff. That shit goes viral. So <laughs> that's why I get so much attention. I mean, I've recently on my Instagram, people have asked, can we please do an interview with Kevin and some of these other guys? Um, Kevin and I have spoken in the past. I'm hoping to get him on. Um, but I just think his work, I think, is being compromised a little bit by the viral seeking content yeah. that some people put out. And that, that's a sad thing. The, the fly-by-nighters. Yeah. Um, as as with everything, you know. But yeah, I, I think you're right there. And I, I don't think it's just limited to Kevin. I think there's also people that have been doing this in the shadows for a long time. And still might be in the shadows now, possibly. doing their work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, that's it. Just, you know, quietly, that, that's the thing. Uh, conservation doesn't pay very well. It also, yeah. it's not something that people get into because they want to be a public figure. They get into it because they want to yeah. make a difference in people's lives and, and nature's, you know, the way nature unfolds and so forth. Do you think and, it's something similar? Where, where, yeah. where, where if, if I help someone, if I do something good for someone, I don't have to go and blast it out on Instagram. Like, yeah. Then yeah. I'm doing it for the wrong reason. That, that's sometimes the feeling that I get with some of these guys. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's grandstanding, man. It's politi- politics do it, you know, wildlife mm. conservation is one of the biggest places to do it. You know, keyboard mm. warriors are another issue we can probably talk about as far as this. Oh, is my concerned. goodness. You, know? you, you must have had your fair share of that. Yeah, I know, for sure. I mean, it's, there's nothing better than having, uh, with all due respect to Westerners, having someone that's probably been, maybe, let's be fair and say someone maybe been on safari once in their life. Yes. Um, or never is all of a sudden experts on how Africa and how you know places that do have more of a wilderness feel to them need to conserve their wildlife and how we need to go about finding the money to conserve this wildlife and how we need to keep it pristine and precious just so that they can come and view it and you know there's so many factors that go into this industry that people just simply they don't give it nearly enough attention they don't give it the time of day it's just more about oh, no, a lion got shot and now we need to go and pillage the person that shot this lion. Not understanding that, you know, maybe, and I'm not a big proponent of hunting, believe me, I've never shot anything in my life. But, you know, people, if you dig a little bit deep, you begin to realize how much value Mm. that lion might bring into an area. And, you know, from our past studies, I forget the complete number or the actual numbers, but I think it was a good sort of, sure, Five million or five, yeah, you know, something. Let's go with five million. I can't remember the exact number, but there's a good uh, amount of hectares of Africa uh, would lose its conservation status if they were to remove lions or, or to remove hunting. Sorry. So, sure, sure, sure. in other words, the, these are areas. You know, if, if we think about Southern Africa, a huge part of it is just mopani forest. It's not mm. photographic. It's not where people want to be. There's nothing going on out there except for animals. And a mm-hmm. very boring bush, because unfortunately, a lot of it is boring. Absolutely. Um, and without allowing these sort of um, these outfitters to come into that area, 
and to occasionally hunt a lion or to occasionally hunt a buffalo or whatever the animal might be, uh, you end up with that area completely losing its its way of making income. Yes. And but what ends up happening is as soon as a government or people or a landowner <laughs> figures out that he can't make income for this property anymore, uh, he will find a way to make that income. Sure. And then you're letting the miners in, the you know strip mining, you're letting the big agricultural uh, industries in, whatever it might be. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you haven't just lost one or two lions or three or four elephants or however many it might be over the decades. You've now lost the entire biodiversity of an area. 100%. And the, the whole chain link is broken. So at the end of the day, I think people get too caught up in trying to protect a particular species, like rhinos, for example, or like lions, for example, forgetting that these bigger animals, you know, things like lions and rhinos and whatever mm. they might be, are actually the least important species for these ecosystems. Yeah. Uh, and what you really need to be fighting for is the biodiversity of an area and, and the protection of it. And mm. the larger an area you can protect, the more biodiversity you're going to protect, which is what conservation is. It's, 100%. It's conservation is making sure the lions go to sleep safely at night. It's yeah. Does sure everything it's else survive and thrive? Yeah. Yeah, I, think yeah. the, the, I mean, this is a very strange comparison, but if you look at US politics right now, and, and since Trump and Hillary did their thing, right, you used to in the past get, you had Democrats, you had Republicans, and you had the, the kind of the middle. And yeah. there was still a point where those two would meet each other in the middle and have conversations. But now yeah. in today's world, they are so polarized that nobody gets close to the middle anymore. They just both carry yeah. on on the sides. And I think maybe there's an argument to be made that a lot of people in conservation now that, for example, the hunting debate, we're not going to go down that road heavily now, but there yeah. is a reason and, and, a, and a way for that to be argued that there's a, a value to it. And then there's the bunny huggers who just do not discuss at all. And yeah. now yeah. we are so polarized that you even try and get them to the middle, the conversation dies. So yeah. Yeah, there's... you need to get back to a, a kind of central point here. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no chance, you know, and and you you often find, you know, you put two of these people, you can put a a, a stout bunny hugger and, and and a stout hunter at a dinner table together without knowing anything about their mm. bunny huggingness or their huntingness, and yes. they could probably strike up one of the closest friendships, you know, um, and and appreciate each other for the values and so forth that they place on life and on on what this is. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as they find that one thing out, it's probably like a Trump or Hillary supporter today. You know, you hear about the states all the time. Our neighbors have become enemies, and mm. whatever it is. You know, people that used to really enjoy each other's company now can't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, within the conservation world, it's definitely like that. I don't think it's um, as polarized as the Trump <laughs> Hillary situation yeah. or, or Trump Biden situation as it is now, but uh, it definitely is a very polarizing thing. And and uh, believe me, it's not easy when you're a guide and you have someone that just loves to look at animals and they just want to go on safari. And then you have someone else that also just loves to look at animals and be in the wilderness, but they also just came off a hunting safari um, yeah. before they got to you. And then that conversation comes up on the vehicle and you have to kind of mediate between these two people and make sure that it doesn't blow out of proportion. Yeah. But I can successfully, I can, I can happily say that I've often navigated those altercations into a fairly pleasant dinner that night where everybody kind of just gets to understand where each other's coming from and so forth. So add a bottle yeah, of red wine and you're good to go, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now listen, um, photography, when did you first pick up a camera? Uh, sorry, come again. When did you first pick up a camera? Shall we? Um, seriously, only, only probably in the last, I don't know. I mean, look, I've, I, uh, um, for those that might go and read my blog, 
um, I started off in working quite heavily in the music industry when I between the ages of like seven, 16 and 21, mm-hmm. uh, around about. Um, and that was more so doing the events and organizing the events and so on. But uh, I'd like to, if I said I wasn't very keen to try and take photographs at these events as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember like, I think it was like my 16th birthday or 17th birthday, my mom got me like a, a 12 megapixel. I mean, 12 megapixels back then was like, that was the bleeding edge. It was like the bomb. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And uh, I used to try and take a lot of photographs. It was just a little point and shoot, man. It was nothing serious, but I was very keen on documenting, if you yeah. know what I mean, and, and getting cool things. And, and um, you know, it was a terrible camera for what I was trying to do. <laughs> you know, when you work in the music industry, a lot of bright flashing lights, there's no light to work with other than strobes and colorful things. So you need to have some pretty serious gear. Um, so a lot of my photographs probably just looked like pretty drunken escapades uh, from back then. Uh, but I was you always had those photographs. Uh, yeah, probably somewhere. Make a cool blog yeah. one day, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> an embarrassing one. Um, but yeah, and then uh, I, I kind of moved into the the wildlife game. I mean, I always wanted to work in wildlife um, or, or, or with wildlife in nature. I didn't quite know what guiding seemed like a safari guiding at that point in time seemed like a great way to get into it. Um, and then I went down the path of conservation more so and so forth and uh, lodge management and so on. But to go back to your original question, I, I think the first time I probably picked up a camera was when I was working at a lodge called Pambili in the Thorny Bush Game Reserve, just outside of Good Sprays. Yeah, quite a cute little three-star lodge. It was the first camp I ever worked at. Okay. Um, and she picked me up off of my um, eco-training course. So I was more of like an intern, gotcha. uh, which they then brought me on full-time. <laughs> but uh, the owner kind of, uh, he had a, a pretty swanky setup at that point in time. I mean, by today's standards, it's, I mean, it was a, a 350D Canon. So as much yeah. as I love Nikon and I've always shot Nikon professionally and, and so forth, yeah, uh, I did start with Canon, you know, so everybody needs training wheels. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, yeah, so he gave me his 350D along with a 100 to 400 mil uh, lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really quite hooked. I, I, it, was, it was quite cool. I remember I didn't, I'd never quite handled a, a system like that before. Yeah. Just to... You know, when you're into photography and you're into cameras and stuff, eventually the bug kind of leaves you having all the latest and greatest gear. But when you're new to it like that and you get to hold oh. such a cool lens in your hand and oh, like a, a camera that you've only ever seen on TV or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah, like angels um, weeping pretty... while you hold it. It's like <laughs> yeah. <crazy. laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of, yeah, the, the, yeah it's, it's pretty cool. Like the floodgates open, you know. Mm. Um I got caught up with that and I produced quite a bit of content for them as well. I've got probably a portfolio of like 30 images that I saved from back then. Uh, I think I used to shoot an auto, to be fair. I didn't quite get the whole deal of what I was doing. Um, But then I left and and, uh, left that camp and I obviously left that setup behind and I moved to a couple of other camps and um, just never really had the bucks to get a lack of setup, you know. So I always tried to have the best smartphone that I could have. just because, love that. You know, I love that you said you know, that. Like excuse and cool. It's a phone and it has a cool camera. And I went into the whole Windows phone situation because they had the best cameras back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I went down that uh, Lumia pathway and it was great. I mean, I got some cool photos with that. Yeah. Um, but it was really only about six years ago that I properly got a, well, I got like a little Nikon starter kit. Sure. Uh, and then uh, a little kit lens, you know, and stuff like that. And then about, vibes. Yeah, 3200, that was it, uh, like a D3200, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, a little dinky, you know, mm. um, compared to what we use now, um, but 
yeah, like shortly after that, once I'd figured out like, cool, this DSLR thing is actually really fun. Um, it was like a quick succession. You know, I didn't really have a choice and you yep. don't, you don't really have a choice because I was all of a sudden working for a cool lodge. Uh, I was making, you know, a little bit more money and photography was actually becoming a thing that I was really interested in. And so it kind of took over my life. And um, quite quickly, I upgraded from that to a D7200 uh, and a 150-600mm Tamron. Uh, and then I just started getting little lenses in between. Yeah. Then I started thinking, hold on, I really need another body. Like this is just, it doesn't work, man. I need two bodies. I, you know, I can't just use the 600 mil all the time. <laughs> and it was around, uh, yeah, about that time, just as the D850 came out. I mean, I'd been watching the, uh, you know, just a bit of a fanboy moment here, but I've been watching all the build-up. You know, Nikon yeah, loves yeah, to yeah. build things up. Like it's this big release. And I mean, the D850 was such a huge release for them. And I was so desperate to get one. Um and I managed to, I managed to, I mean, I, I, even at the, the age of like 27 or however old I was back then when it came out or 28. How old is that? Uh, camera? Uh, it's like four years, yeah. four years or three years. Okay. Yeah. Can't it's remember, the four beast, years. Eh? Dynamic range yeah, still, is I, off the hook. Yeah. I mean, I still haven't, I haven't found a reason to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't, I, I can't. Um, the only thing I can see with it, um, you know, as I, as I mature into photography and get uh, more into it, videography becomes a bit of an issue that was one of the sore points with nikon cameras back then yes or, or with the dslrs is they were never very good at film when was, um, when they released the d90 way back wasn't the d90 one of the first dslrs that could do video and camera it was yeah i think it was the d90 or the d like a big or... song and their, their their ad for it and all the magazines was still there was a roller and then you could like this is now you can swap between these two but they don't make yeah. it easy they, they don't make yeah, it yeah. Easy. Yeah, it's strange because I mean, if you look at like the same same time frame, like the Canon five D four or five D three or whatever came out. Yeah. At the same time as the D eight fifty, and and Nikon's always been like so like far ahead in some ways, and just so far behind in others. Sure. The D eight fifty was like one of the first cameras that could actually shoot proper uncropped four K film. Yeah. And it, it's uh, it's super crisp and it's beautiful. The colors are amazing. The, the sharpness is amazing. But then it just can't focus. It has yeah. no idea what you want to do so then you get canon who releases this weird crop pretend 4k yes but it can focus you know yeah. dual pixel and whatever it's called and so it's kind of weird i don't know why nikon always went for like let's have the best quality but, but then it can't do what we needed to do anyway so it's quite frustrating but you know you, i get away with it have you seen the ads or the the specs for the z9 uh yeah look it, it might tempt me to go mirrorless eventually mm. Um, oh, I, I have. I've seen a few things. Nikon yeah. way back they had the J1 and the V1, which was little mirrorless ones, and they they were also interchangeable, and they were one yeah. of the first guys to go in that direction. But then they just stopped. And and yeah. like, I think what the hell, man. But that Z9 yeah. paper kind of they're trying to pitch it against the Sony A1, which is an interesting. Yeah, yeah. and the and the new the the Canon yet to be released R3 or R1 yes. or whatever it's going to be. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I've still got high hopes for, for Nikon. I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm completely sold into the Nikon ecosystem, but I'm so invested now. I mean, so like all photographers, all the Nikon pros are just waiting for a better mirrorless to come out sure. so that they can actually upgrade to it. Yeah. Um, but look, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like they, they got into the mirrorless game first and then people were still all about the DSLRs and it just kind of mirrorless will away. never work. Yeah. No, mirrorless will never work, you know? And, um, and here we are, Nikon kind of the last in the race at the moment, where it's mm. quite strange. Three years ago, they were first in the race. Sure. It's like four years ago, they were kings of the hill. Uh, so these things ebb and flow. You know, it's, mm. it's, always a, it's always a bit sad when you have a brand that you like uh, yeah. kind of go down. And, yeah. You know, you, you probably love 
<laughs> I'm a Nikon guy and a Microsoft guy, you know, so there you go. It kind of sums me up. <laughs> we, we just lost half our listeners there. Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, I mean, what we must actually, when we both, when, when this COVID thing slows down and we can get to the office, we must have a conversation because I've been speaking to Nick on South Africa about that Z9. So when they come out, hopefully we can get our hands on one. And I think it'll be an interesting exercise to put it up yeah. against something like the A1. I think the A1, yeah. I had a client recently who shot that thing. You'll like this. We had a cheetah sighting. It was in Sabi San, Sabi Sabi, right? So we watched this cheetah hunt start to finish, got the A1. First time to Africa. It's amazing shooting it at um, lossless, raw, uncompressed, the whole thing. And yeah. that thing fires off ridiculous, like, like I don't know, 40,000 images per second. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. one cheetah sighting, this guy with his A1, because it's so fast, 600 gigabytes, I shit you not. One sighting. Yeah. That gets a bit stupid because when you, yeah. you're not shooting yeah. fast video, and you yeah. go through Lightroom afterwards, and you just tick, 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 tick. It all looks the same because it's too damn fast. Yeah. So there's, a, yeah. there's a balance as well, I think, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, you know, this is also the thing. Because, I, I, I mean, I'm still with DSLRs. I still very much like DSLRs. I prefer the hand, the feel in hand. I prefer the layouts. I prefer a chunky body that's got a good anchor for a, for a lens. And that often leads me into discussions or, or sometimes even arguments because mirrorless people are quite quite adamant about yes, mirrorless and uh, how small it is and wonderful it is and it does 70 million frames per second and yeah. it's just incredible and uh, you know I, you know i think the sweet spot for frames per second is 10 it's I hear you. like eight and ten and that's it otherwise you end up with i mean yeah you end up with four thousand photos even with my d850 you know prior to me just getting the script spoke about prior to the podcast mm. uh was doing seven frames a second i was very rarely missing the shot, if mm. you know what I mean, within those seven frames or, or 14 frames that you get off in the two seconds of, of the bird flying by or whatever, yeah. you get your shot, you know, and, and I get it. You get more choice when you have an A1 or an A9 or a Z3 million or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but there's a fine line. There's mm. a line between, you know, these cameras just doing way too much and yeah. and you just kind of sitting back and letting mm. it do what, what I, it does. I had a moment years ago when the, I think it was the 1D4 Canon just came out. And this thing was doing, I, don't, I can't remember, 14, 12, 13, 14, 15 frames per second. So I was at yeah. Zamanga. They just opened in Kozlunstel with the underground hides and stuff. So I had yeah, a yeah. client there on a personal, uh, on a private guided trip. So at, at that stage, you didn't get exclusive use of the hide. You still shared with other people. So yeah. Phil, my client, and I, we got in, we set up, and it was the bird hide. It's boring as shit. It's, it's <laughs> like, well, you're sitting, there's a piece of glass. And look, it's, it's proper glass to shoot through. And then it narrows down to probably about a 60 centimeter area where all the little birds come and sit and drink. So you can shoot these things, right? So this lady comes in and so Phil and I are talking about what now background depth of field, blah, 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 blah. And this lady sets up, so she puts, she had the 400 2.8 at the time. And there's one, I think it was the 1D4. And then the bird, I mean, you can point at a spot, something's going to land there. It's given, it's that small. So she would sit there mm -hmm. and then a dove would come in and it starts drinking. So we would be working and talking. And then the moment we just hear, as like, what the fuck's going on? So we yeah. look sideways, yeah, yeah. got a remote on it. And she, the, the dove's only sitting there. And she says, I will get him taking off. I'm like, my dead grandmother can take pictures like that. I mean, yeah. so, so now it's yeah. not the photographer anymore. And I think a lot of people rely on that speed where, and I mean, you go into the morrow next week, we'll get to that now, but, or tomorrow. Mm. Tomorrow, actually. Yeah. And yeah. people would just go, and then choose the best image. 
And I normally yeah. say to my clients, take short bursts. Brr, stop, brr, stop. Because yeah. if you're involved yeah. in the process. And yeah. you've gone yeah. to a point where the camera just run away with it. Yeah, plus, I mean, also you pick up on these subtle movements of the animals and birds and so on when, you know, it, it, un- photography is an uncomfortable thing to do. It's it's not a comfortable thing to do sometimes. The positions we get into sometimes. Arch- yeah, you sometimes arch over the side of the vehicle waiting for this cheetah or leopard or whatever it is to lift its head from the carcass. Yeah, and and waiting there for the two three minutes because you really want the blood to be dripping fresh from you know whatever it is that you're yeah. trying to deal with, <laughs> and like your back's crimpling and your hand is going dead and you know it's not just a case of setting up a camera and just then taking a million photos until the thing does something. Mm. It's about picking up and, and and having that patience and knowing. Yeah. It's funny because I was laughing with Trevor the other day because Trevor, yeah. I was on safari with him and, and he had uh, the A nine. Yes. A92, I think. That's, that's also fast, hey? Yeah, very fast. I mean, it does like 20 frames a second. And, and yeah. we would stop and and we'd be looking. At the, I remember the one night we were like photographing the moon, you know, as, as fast as the moon moves. And uh, because this camera is now set up for 20 frames a second, he just touches that shutter and it's like... Oh, you got like seven shots. Shit, you just missed the moon, man. You got to be careful. Got to be quick. Uh, pan it, pan it. Um, it's just like, yeah. And I know you could probably just toggle a quick setting and put it back to one frame a second or whatever, or one frame, click yeah. and go and whatever. But uh, yeah, it was just quite funny because you don't often find people do that. They they see a Impala and there's 7,000 photographs of yeah. the Impala suddenly. <laughs> I think, no, it's, it's crazy, man. For me, like I'm a lazy photographer, especially when it comes to Lightroom and stuff. When I download my images and I have to look through 37 images to find one Buffalo shot that works, I, I lose interest. Yeah. It's like, God, I yeah, mean, yeah. less is more for me because I, I want to shoot that I, I, I'm in, in the field, use skill to get the shots. I don't have to go and just choose one like most people do. Oh, this one's good. And what I've yeah. also seen with people shooting so many is we'll, we'll be at the Mara and you'll see when you get to the camp. We, so we'll be in the dining t- oh, in the media tent and people are live streaming and downloading and you're doing this and helping, walking around. And someone would say, oh, look at this shot. I want to post this to Instagram. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's a great shot. What would have happened if you maybe just waited a bit and his mouth was more open or the eye was open or whatever? Uh, Do you have any other shots? And they hit G on Lightroom, go to grid view, and literally from top to bottom is just the same shot. And like, that's why you're struggling because you don't know how to choose. It's, I think people get lost in it. You know, also the thing is, it adds um, for me when I end up with a a catalog um, like that and you go to grid view and it's just like, You've, you've well well overdone the leopard shot or the leopard sighting. You've you've got way too many photos. And now as a as as a pro photographer, you kind of sit there and you go, which one of these photographs is the best photograph? Yeah. Which one do I potentially try and put on my Instagram or my Facebook because I mm-hmm. potentially want to get a sale from it or a yeah. whatever from it? And you don't want to, you know, as a, as a someone that takes photography quite seriously, you're not going to go and post 47 photographs of the same leopard sighting. Yeah. You're going to post one, maybe two, you know, and yeah. they need to be the best ones because you know, people have a very short attention span. You want that one photograph to hit the nail on the head, but now you've got 70, 70 of them to choose from. Yeah. And I find that to be quite a stressful situation to be in. And that's what I always say to to my guests is, you know, don't take too many photos because then you sit at the computer and you stress and, and it, it, it removes the fun. Um, because even if you are an amateur photographer, you still want your Instagram to be the best you can possibly have it or your website to be the best or whatever. Yeah. Um, but now you're just, you, you're lengthening your time at the computer you know, tenfold because you can't even choose which photograph you want to edit yeah. at the end of the day. You know? I think the, the, the big thing, and it's 100% right. To me, the 
and this is where people get it wrong. The experience of wildlife photography should hinge around the wildlife, not the photography. But people yeah. get lost in the photography so much that they miss yeah, some yeah. of the wildlife experience. <clears throat> and that's a yeah. sad thing. And that that's yeah. what I mean from, from when we started this company, we wanted to take we wanted to take the intimidation away. You don't need the big lenses, you don't need all these fast cameras and stuff because it's just a part of the experience. And let's be honest, yeah. I mean, for, for I'm trying to think out loud here of all the clients I've ever hosted since we started Wild Eye and maybe even at lodges and stuff before, how many of them actually do anything with their images except for post it on Instagram this big? So, yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. why get so cool and they <laughs> fuck themselves up because, oh my God, I can't pan this or I can't do yeah. this. It's not, yeah, worth, yeah. It's not worth it. It should be yeah. fun. Yeah, and, and I, I often find myself, you know, when I'm sitting with guests, I can see, and I'll be sitting in the sighting, I'm looking at the exact same thing. It's a leopard lying behind a tree. Yeah. You can't see anything. And there's still a guy trying to line up a shot here. Um, <coughs> and it moves and it's sleeping and whatever. And it's just it's, it's just a cuck shot. There's nothing there. Yeah. You know, and, and um, you know, I, I think Trevor, when I had him the other day, we had another lady with us on the vehicle. And I just turned around and said, look, you know, there, there isn't a photograph here. No. There's no photograph. Take. Uh, mm. Put your camera down. Stop worrying about it. Just sit back. Let's talk some shit here on the back of the vehicle. Yeah. And uh, we'll, you know, when the leopard gets up, then we'll get ready. We'll take some photographs. Right now, there's nothing going on. You know. Yeah. So yeah, people get just so enthralled with getting a photograph of something um, yeah. that they forget to enjoy where they are and what they're yeah. doing. And it's yeah, it's experience first, man. Experience first. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. we'll produce better photographs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, there was. I think it's a wedding photographer once. Can't remember the name. That said, I mean, you can only photograph well the things you really care about. So yeah, put yourself in there, just chill down, have a Tusker in in the vehicle with Sammy or Jimmy, which you'll see in two days from now, and it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, just yeah. slow down. I mean, look. I mean, to to go back to that, I completely agree. My wife won't even let me take photographs of her because I I do not have a passion really for photographing humans yeah. no. and. Uh, at the end of the day, someone asked me to take a photograph of them. I'm like, there you go. There's your photograph. It took me <laughs> yeah. Whereas when it's like a, a, a leopard or a lion or, I don't know, a herd of buffalo, whatever oh, it is. I'm backlit. trying mm. to get it right and like, got to get it perfect. Can I jump out the vehicle here? Is it safe to lie down? Is it this? Is it that? Um, you know, and you just kind of, your mind's racing at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and, you know, myself and my wife, we have been hired to, to photograph and video because she's a videographer yeah. more so than me. Uh, to do like some birthday parties and stuff like that and yeah i guess it's pretty cool when when someone's actually um uh you know actually paying you for the service you you take a lot more seriously you know uh -huh. and and you you really want to put your best foot forward and sure. and yeah that's always fun but it's not something i'm going to chase if you know what i mean yeah. I, I would rather be out there looking for wildlife looking for landscapes looking for you know culture cityscapes things like that whatever it is something that's that's just waiting to be captured not someone that's wanting to be captured. as well Sorry, it speaks to you. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's that's it. At the end of the day, yeah. deal. Eh? When were you last yeah. in Kenya? Uh, to twenty eighteen. Where did you stay? At Angama Mara. Oh, you stayed in Angama. Nice. Yeah. 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 Myself and my wife went on honeymoon. Ah, lovely. So, it's quite nice when you're in this industry. You you get to know people, and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it has its perks. I mean, apart from watching lions perks, and yeah. stuff like that, there's other yeah. benefits as well. <laughs> Yeah, so no, we, we got to spend uh, three days at Ngama, and we also spent three days in the Laikipia County near okay. Olpajita. Yeah. Uh, went to, unfortunately, we, we got to Olpajita 
two weeks after um, uh, what's his name Sudan had died. Yes, uh, the the white rhino, the northern white rhino. Yes, uh, it was heartbreaking because we were very excited to actually meet. Yeah, uh, but we met the other two and so forth. But that was cool. But yeah, last time I was in Kalamara. Very special. Uh, the views from that swimming pool deck is just stupid. Yeah, it's kind of like a sunken round seating area with a fire pit in the middle. It's very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you, you look can over the plains from there. I mean, yeah. holy hell. Yeah, you can you can look out over those plains for days. Mm. It just doesn't. Now the cool thing, yeah. and you'll see this next week. So when you come from Ngamamara, you do the drive down to get into the triangle. The road yeah. as you come down, so it, it kind of does a couple of S curves through that little forest thicket area, and it comes yeah. over and down. As it comes down on the right hand side. That's where we do our out of Africa breakfast. So you, you, you'll recognize it the moment you get there. But that top yeah. part of the triangle is, I think that, and then the southern part where Tanzania, um, Kenya border is, there's something like guttural, like almost ancient Africa about it. Because you've got, when you ask a young kid anywhere from the world, draw a picture of Africa, it's that with a tree. That's like, that's and the sunset. <laughs> so that northern part yeah. and then down on the border, those two areas are just spectacular how was your game viewing yeah. last time uh it was cool i mean we went down right down to the uh, the border of tanzania and um the game view was great i mean we the the first afternoon um i was super pumped to get going and you know, i really wanted to go out and then the huge thunderstorm and we went oh, yeah. we went to uh, where was it um so as we got there got into our room got all our stuff ready went to our vehicle it just started raining and cats oh, and dogs i've never seen it rain like that yeah. before uh, well, I didn't expect it. To, like it was just. What time are you? Was this? Um, April, May. Okay, I think it was. Yeah, we got married in April, so yeah, it was like three days okay. after we got married, so somewhere there, yeah. April, I think. Um, so yeah, we we kind of it started raining, and we, we were with a lovely guard. I think her name was Sophie, or something <laughs> like that. Mm -hmm. And she, uh lady, and she said, "Oh, cool. look, if you guys still want to go down, let's go." And yeah. and and I knew going to the Mara, one of my biggest once photography wise was a, was a cheetah in the rain and um literally when we got there we looked at them through a little spotting scope and whatever um so i said cool if we can just go down to these lions and i can photograph some lions in the rain oh. that would be great so we did and i got some very cool photographs i got like two or three that i was super chuffed with nice um in fact one of them's on my portfolio uh, on the wild Eye website okay uh after that, I was like, cool, it's raining, man. My gear was soaking. I mean, we had a vehicle with a roof over yeah, it. Yeah. The, not, not like the wild eye vehicles. They were the open land cruisers yeah, you know, yeah. with the canvas that drops. Um, and we were kind of soaked and cold and whatever. And so we went back up that terrible road, <laughs> yes. especially if in the land cruiser. It's just the worst thing ever. It's nice to have a hot listeners business. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we went back up there and then fortunately it was just flooding and the road was flooding and all sorts, but we, we got home. It was pretty exciting. We had to go yeah. the long way around back up to like the main road on that, uh, on the yeah, yeah. Scarpens, like mm -hmm. there's people living there and stuff, which when you come from South Africa, that's quite weird to see in a game reserve. You, no, you don't like see that. It's just like mingled together. It's just like people living there with the, the elephants outside. Mm. Um, and so that was cool. But then the rest of the trip was, was really cool. We had a cool cheetah sighting, a uh, mother with two of her cubs. Yeah. Uh, the cubs was like sub eight also. They were quite big, and they were just playing around and having fun. Uh, and then a bit later, she, the mother, tried to do a bit of a hunt, but she failed. Um, good elephants, good, yeah. good, lots of good stuff. Yeah, it was it was a great a great few days. Yeah. You must be quite pumped to get back up there again, then, hey? Yeah, um, 
I'm I'm dying to get back out there, man. I'm, uh, you know, when we left the Mara, truth be told, myself and my wife, who were up until very recently managing a lodge together, Mm. uh, we were like, geez, let's start looking for jobs in Kenya. Let's Mm -hmm. do it. Um, Because we were just like so taken aback. Not to take anything away from the Kruger, because we've always been based in the Kruger, you know, in that area. Um, And and to be fair, when we were heading up to the Mara, I said to to Britt, uh, I said, sheesh, you know, I'm really hoping that the Mara doesn't outclass the Kruger, because mm-hmm. the Kruger is so, so special to most South Africans, you know, yeah. it's, it's quite proud of, all of us are very proud of it and whatever. And um, as amazing as the Mara was, um, I still, I, I remember saying to her, I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm pretty chuffed. I feel like the Kruger held its ground mm. um, and Southern Africa is something to be proud of. And the main reason I, I, I came to that conclusion is because in the Kruger in Southern Africa, you kind of, it's a hunt, you know, you, you're tracking, you're looking, mm. you you don't know what's around the next corner because the bush is just so different. Sure. Uh, whereas tomorrow, it kind of feels like you're cheating. Sometimes easy. It's literally. Sometimes too easy. We've driven. Um, which I mean, is great. No, no. I mean, but, but there's yeah. the thing. I mean, people saying, oh, no, this is better than that. Or I don't want to go to the Kruger because I've been to the Mara. I think they're killing themselves from both an experience point of view. And if you're a photographer yeah. from a portfolio point of view. So, yeah, so why not do everything? I mean, it's yeah. there's no best. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing. If you've been to East Africa and, and you think East Africa is the be-all and end-all, try Southern Africa. You might yep. uh, you might just find another be-all and end-all. It's not going to replace East Africa, just mm-hmm. vice versa as well. Yeah. But you'll I, find I another don't want to choose between part. pizza and burger. I want both at some stage. I yeah, can't exactly. choose between. I want yeah. both. It's like at some yeah, I like that. Oh. I like that analysis. Yeah, exactly. That's nah, cool, man. Yeah. And tell me, so I mean, uh, you're, as part of the wildlife team, are you going to the Mara flying tomorrow? And what other trips have you got lined up so far? Uh, so I go to the Mara now for a week. Um, then I'm back in Joburg for two weeks. Then I go to the Mara again for a, a, a great migration week. Hopefully, I'm even expecting there to possibly be a crossing now. They've um, started already. The crossings have started yeah. yeah, I saw that they, they're starting to dribble through at the moment. So definitely by the 8th of August when I'm back there oh, yeah. for another week, um, there'll probably be you know, a good few hundred thousand of them to look at. Yeah. Um, then after that, I do Medique. In October, I've got a, a tour to Madikwe, a, a week long. Um, then straight after that, I go into a private tour with um, uh, going from Mala Mala to Sabi Sabi, mm-hmm. which is going to be pretty cool going with a, with a couple there. Nice. Um, and then I think that's it. That's it for the rest of the year at the moment. Mm. And then next year, you know, things are booking but, up already. So. so basically you have time. Should people want to book you for a private? I mean, there's not Absolutely. time left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and tell me. Yeah, I mean, I, no, no, no. Go for it. Sorry. I was just going to say, I am working with a few people now. So um, possibly another bot, um, uh, privates, probably not this year, but early next year, something like that, you know. So, yeah, we'll see. But I've definitely got time. So if anyone yeah. wants to go on safari with me, it's yeah, talk. Give me a shot. Mm. Yeah. Let's so from, so from uh, I know when we, we spoke, like on the interview and stuff, we spoke about some trips. If there was another destination on the wildlife site that you have not been to, what's top of your list and why? Um, okay, there's a couple that, that are on the wild eye. Uh, I like stuff uh, we offer already. Yeah, stuff you offer already. Uh, it's a toss-up. Number one would be between Iceland and Svalbard. Mm. Uh, like that's, uh, I've always just had a, a great affinity for, for that sort of environment. Um, and I've never even, I've, I've only ever experienced it through TV, to be fair. So I don't <laughs> know, know anything about it. Uh, but I'd love to go there. And then um, huge on my list at the moment, um, you know, it's a toss-up again. For so, let me give you four places: Uganda for the gorillas and yeah. Madagascar. 
So oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Okay. Those are, those are kind of the, uh, I would love to see, you know, as much as I love Africa, the reason why Iceland and Svalbard are, are on my list is because they're not Africa. They, they're yeah. completely removed from what I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, you know, particularly there in Svalbard where the, the wildlife is also just completely different. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty interested to see a, a very snowy environment, a very... Mm-hmm cold tundra arctic environment I'm, yeah. I'm very excited to see that it's an one. interesting thing i remember getting there the first time to svalbard to the 2012 13 somewhere and i mean having then guided for like 10 years you know the bush it's like this that the other you get there and when you step out the plane it's like you're stepping into a movie and you're like okay yeah. this, this is weird and this is just the environment and then when you start seeing things like svalbard reindeer and blue whale yeah. and arctic fox and then polar bears and stuff there, there is a there is a skill transfer from a photographic point of view from what we do to that, but it's different. So people think, yeah. oh, it's difficult to expose because it's white. It's not that difficult because everything's white. It's not like you have to balance contrast in your shots. But yeah. I think the appreciation for it comes when you come back because then mm-hmm. you start appreciating things on a different level. And I think for me, when I go to Svalbard and I see polar bears, I think of someone coming to see their first lion or their first leopard. And, yeah. and, and yeah. I think it... It, it deepens your appreciation for what you already have and did. It, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a nice kind of, what's the word? It puts everything in context. And, yeah. it, and, it, and maybe it pushes gratitude because you think, you know what? The way I felt when I saw that polar bear, probably on every trip that I have, there's someone who's going to feel that same emotion when they see their first elephant, lion, leopard, buffalo, rhino. Yeah. Uh, that's a cool thing, man. It, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, you kind of, uh, yeah. Um... That's exactly it. You know, I'm, I think I'd be beside myself to see a polar bear. Yeah, you um, make a happy wee wee the first time. It just is what it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm very excited for that day when it does come around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a photography point of view, it's yeah probably quite a tricky thing to do. But, mm. um, you know, once you've you've worked in Africa for a while and you're so used to, I mean, Africa's got the best lights. It's just it's the oh, yeah. golden, beautiful light. To it's almost like cheating wildlife photography, if you know what I mean. Um, so once you've kind of uh, uh, mastered it, you, you really are quite itchy to see what other environments you yeah. can master and so yeah. forth. Yeah. The, the interesting I thing, I mean, I think for, for us and a lot of our both guides and Fanny Feldkinners, all the local guys who think they know the bush because they read a book, but mm-hmm. a lot of the photographers and local people, they start taking for granted the amount of wildlife we have, of big game. I mean, yeah. some European countries, if you're lucky, you get a, I don't know, a fucking squirrel or something, and then that's it. So, yeah. so yeah. we still need to kind of, we can go out on a game drive and see 20 plus large mammal species in a drive. Yeah. And we take that for granted. So I think people need to understand that, that when we say we have the best wildlife and the most diverse, it's not a question. There's just yeah. no question. Yeah. Even, yeah. even places like Great Bear Rainforest and all those, you, you do have these, there's bears and there's maybe a moose or an elk, or what's those little things? I can't even remember. Looks like a ferret. You've got those, but nothing like yeah. we have. Nothing like a mink. Yeah. A mink? A mink? mink? A prairie dog? <laughs> those as well. I mean, how many yeah. prairie dogs? Are there? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, it's bizarre, man. But yeah, you're... someone, a guard from there will have to teach us. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, um, I forget what I was going to say. What I was going to say is, you know, it gets to a point when you are an African guide, when you when you go out on safari and you only see like five different, substantially different species, but you're yeah. only seeing five of them in the morning. You're kind of like, oh, shit, that was a quiet morning. Exactly. My guests must be so bored. Like, 
Mm. What are we going to do? Like, I need to find something. I need to find yeah, the yeah. cats. And a lot of some people are chasing cats, and it adds to the stress of the situation and so yeah. forth. But uh, there's been so many times in my life where I've turned around, I'm like, geez, guys, I'm sorry. It's, it's a quiet morning. You know, you kind of, because you, you feel like you're personally responsible for this beautiful place that, you know, from. Uh, and and it's, it's awesome. A lot of the time people turn around, like, what are you talking about? It's like a quiet morning, man. We just saw like mm. rhinos and elephants and, yeah. uh, and people get blown away by an impala. And you're yeah. like, oh, cool. You know, they're very rare, you know, so, yeah. But those quiet days, and I, and I often make a point of saying, look, in the Mara, I, ha I had, <laughs> in all my time in the Mara, I've had maybe two trips that I can remember that was dead quiet. I mean, we would have stopped for an Impala at this stage. It was bad, right? It was really <laughs> bad. But at that stage, all the clients have traveled before and they know the bush. And I make a point to remind people, you know, those quiet days, puts into context that you are in the wild. It's not a game park or a zoo or a, you yeah. go to the Mara, you will see good stuff, but it's still the wild. Yes, there's yeah. a situation, we can have a whole discussion about that, but it's still the wild. So you could go out there and see nothing. It's very real. And then when mm. you see your next lion the next morning, there's, ah, okay, we found something. Appreciation jumps up. So it's, it's, yeah. it's part of the game, man. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and, and people quickly realize what it means. You know, nature's nature. She goes by her own rules. You know, it doesn't matter how hard some mornings you and your tracker work. If you are in Southern Africa where trackers are being used mm. um, <clears throat> or you work on trying to find these things, just this, there just isn't things to look at, you know. And that's, yeah. that's also, I think, you know, where your photography needs to, from a photographic point of view, you know, there's not always leopards and lions to photograph, but mm. there is always birds and trees and landscape yeah. and, and, backlit spider webs and uh dew drops and just there's always something cool to photograph yeah. and i think that's you know that's also what i kind of try and focus on with my guiding when i do photographic guiding is helping people get those nuances the little things the the stuff that's a cool pc background you know a cool yeah. cell phone background something that's that's not just this state-of-the-art leopard shot you know up a tree um you know uh, help people understand you know what it is this photography thing it's not just about big animals it's yeah. about capturing everything around you and enjoying it yeah that's great i think that's a great thing that i mean kind of to start wrapping up here that what you said there now i think we've been very very lucky touch wood with our clients at wild eye because at the beginning we've put out a certain energy a certain personality but we've always made it about the experience and people get that they get mm that we're going to try different things. You're going to, you might stop and see where bee eaters are hunting from a perch and you spend two and a half hours there. But yeah. I, I think, so, so we, you're not, you, it's very seldom, look, it could happen where you're going to have to convince one of your wildlife clients to let's wait for the shot. So, so I think people yeah. get that. And that's, that's what, that's what I'm, look, I'm very grateful for that. And you'll see now when you go up, it's, that's golden as people get it. And that, that's, yeah. I mean, it really is cool. Yeah, yeah. Just wait for there to be a pile of dung with some dung beetles. I'll have oh. guests there for two hours. Done. On your <laughs> That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cool thing now, I mean, you mentioned earlier the quality of the phones we have. You literally, you can shoot a 4K video. You've got that phone in the dung with the dung beetles, and you've got Nat Geo stuff happening there. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Little beetle cam <laughs> for dung beetles. There's a whole different discussion, but we'll ask that one for another time. No, we'll go down that path. <laughs> not, not just yet, but eventually we will. Yeah. Uh, Matt, listen, if people want to get hold of you on Instagram email, how do they do that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can find me, uh, get in touch just by going to the Wild Eye website, obviously, wildeye.co.za um, or .com. 
And uh, you'll just filter to my profile and you'll see me there. Um, otherwise, yeah, just find me on Instagram, Luke Street Photography. So mm -hmm. street as in the road. Yes, that's my surname, street. <laughs> you'll get taken aback by that. Uh, Luke Street Photography on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and yeah, if you just want to get directly in touch with me, pop me a message on Instagram. Always happy to chat. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, pop me an email, um, luke at wildeye.co.za. Perfect. And what I'll do is I'll link all of the stuff you just mentioned. I'll put in the description. So if you guys want to get in touch with Luke, that's how you do it. Um, but yeah, I think you need to start packing because you're leaving for Kenya tomorrow. So what yeah. I think we'll do is when you're back from the Mara, I think I'm going up the week after you. So when we're both back, let's do another one of these. We'll do it in the studio at the office and talk Mara camp and see what you thought about it. Because you've obviously seen and heard about this thing now. And yeah, I'd love to get your view when you're back. Cool. No problem. More than uh, very keen to do this again. So yeah, oh, absolutely. Luke, thank you so much. Great having you on the team. Guys, please get in touch with Luke. Go and check out his work. Really phenomenal. And um, if you want to get hold of me, you know how to do that. Jerry Fenevolt on all the social platforms. Jerry at wildeye.co.za. Those are in the links and the descriptions as well. Uh, but for now, Luke, thanks for your time. And I hope you have an incredible trip, man. Cool. Thanks, Jerry. Have a good Fantastic. weekend. Lovely. <laughs> Guys, thank you for your time. Thank you for lending us your ears. And we will chat to you in the next episode. My name is Jerry. I'm from Wild Eye. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye.